Second Samuel chapter 13 this evening. Second uh, Samuel chapter 13. 25 years ago, almost to the very date, November the 19th, 1997, just a few weeks from November the 19th, I preached my very first sermon. I was 15 years old. I preached for 20 minutes. Some of you wish I still did that. Uh, I cried for 15 of the 20 minutes. I was so nervous. My father was so kind uh, to allow me to uh, preach to their church family on a Wednesday night. I, I say that because that first sermon was from this passage of Scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 13. Now, I'll be honest, looking back, it was not a good choice of text as a 15-year-old, especially for my first ever sermon. I had good intentions, however, good intentions. But tonight, 25 years later, I'm getting a second shot at this chapter because I have yet to go back to it uh, since that dreadful attempt when I was 15 years old. Now, I want to tell you, it will not be 20 minutes like the first one, uh, but hopefully it will be more. Stop that. Hopefully, it'll be more biblical, uh, more expositional, more understandable, and dealt with uh, in a more helpful way. It's a lengthy passage, but I think we need to read it all before we dive into it. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon laid down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David uh, sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me. 
For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and laid with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out, bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, and crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Bahel Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. But he pressed him. He would not go, but he did give him a blessing. Then Absalom said, If, if not you, then please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous. Be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded Then all the king's sons arose, each mounted his mule, and fled. Now while they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all of his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not thy lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came, lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all of his servants wept bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Tamai, the son of Hamihad, king of Geshur. 
And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. It's a weighty passage. And frankly, very tragic. But I want to give you a terrifying thought as we jump into this tonight. The faults and failings of parents are often reproduced in their children. That is a terrifying thought. I know for me it is. That the faults and failings of parents are often reproduced in their children. In other words, looks and personality are not the only things passed from one generation to the next. Our children are more like us than we care to admit that they are. Kathleen and I talk about this often because we honestly acknowledge that we see so much our own sin in the lives of our children. That the very things that we get frustrated about their sin is the very same sin that often arrests us as parents. Matt Matthew Henry said, grace does not run in the blood, but corruption does. Corruption does. Now, it's not inevitable, and I want, to, I want us to make that clear tonight. It's not inevitable that our children will display all of our sins and all of our failures. But it is highly likely that they will be affected by our sins and by our failures. I mean, without even trying, our own character flaws and bad habits can be easily spotted in our kids. So it's true, it's true. As the saying goes... Like father, like son. And it can be a terrifying reality. Now I want you to think about that as we jump into 2 Samuel chapter 13. Because here in this chapter and really throughout the remainder of 2 Samuel, we are seeing David's family experience the chaos and disaster that sin will bring. It's easily one of the most soul-wrenching stories in the Bible. We might even wonder why in the world it's even here. What's, what's the purpose in knowing about these things? It's a look for us at two of David's sons and how with both of their behaviors we can easily say here, like father, like son. I'm going to give you several things to jot down as a way of headers for each of these sections as we go through the chapter. Number one, we see, first of all, an unhealthy infatuation. An unhealthy infatuation, verses 1 and 2. So what we have here, right at the very beginning, verse 1, we have three of David's children mentioned. Now, at this point, uh, we're using the term children, but they're, they're now young adults, probably in their early 20s, all living in their own residences there in the palace combine, no doubt. Amnon is the, the oldest of David's sons, and he's the rightful heir to the throne. We also have mentioned here Absalom. Absalom is the second 
oldest of David's surviving sons. Amnon and Absalom were both David's sons, but they had different mothers, so they were, they were half-brothers. But we also have another child of David listed here in verse 1, and that's his daughter uh, Tamar, who is Absalom's sister. She was Amnon's half-sister. All right, are we following this? All right, Amnon and Absalom, brothers, sons of David, different moms. Tamar, daughter of David, but shares the same mom that Absalom has. That makes Absalom and Tamar half-siblings of Amnon. And what do we know about Tamar? You find out here that obviously she is royalty. She's a princess. She's beautiful. She's pure. A layout of her character in the episode of the story shows us that she's a person of integrity. She's also the object of her half-brother Amnon's unhealthy infatuation. Verse 1 says that Amnon loved her. Bad choice of words. Not because that's what the Bible says about her, but not in the same way that we think true love to be. No, what is mentioned here is the word love, but this was more like a lustful attraction is what this was. He physically desired to have her, so much so that he made himself sick over her. And then he becomes greatly frustrated that it seemed impossible for him to have her. Now, why would we say that it's impossible? Well, to begin with, the act of sexual intimacy outside of marriage was morally wrong. It was a sin against God, God's people do not behave in this manner. So we could begin really and end there. That's why it's not appropriate. That's why it's wrong. That's why this should be viewed as an impossibility. But that's not the only problem here. We also see that she's his half-sister. So it's explicitly wrong legally to engage in incest. So Amnon sees this as an impossible situation because it's morally long to engage in intimacy outside of marriage. She's his half-sister. I think a third element to this is that he knew that she would never go along with it. I think he knew that. But here we are. Just like his father on the rooftop of his palace the day that he saw Bathsheba. Amnon wanted something that was clearly wrong for him to have. It's an unhealthy infatuation. And let me remind all of us tonight that this is how sin begins. Sin begins with an unhealthy desire for that which violates the holiness of God. That's where sin begins with an unhealthy desire for that which violates the holiness of God. That's Amnon in a nutshell. He's an ungodly, unholy, unhealthy son of David. All right, so we see an unhealthy infatuation. Secondly, we see a dangerous friend, a dangerous friend. And this was actually what my text was when I was 15 years old. My wife was laughing at me yesterday when she saw what I was preaching on. She said, please say it like you said it on that recording that I saw. But Amnon had a friend, all right? 
That was the whole point of the message. Amnon had friends and go with good friends, stay away from bad friends, let's pray and go home. But it is true, as bad as that first sermon was that I preached, it is true. Verse 3 says, Amnon had a friend, and it was a dangerous friend, a dangerous friend. His name was Jonadab. But as we see here, Jonadab was also his cousin. He was David's nephew, his brother's son. And the chapter indicates that Jonadab was around the palace quite a bit. We see him here at the beginning of the chapter. We'll see him again later at the end of the chapter. And the fact that the narrator identifies him first as being Amnon's friend and not just his cousin shows us that these two, Amnon and Jonadab, most likely were tight. I mean, they were together, showing us that perhaps they shared the same character. Now, let me just say here, there is not a person in this room that doesn't understand the value of godly companions. What a privilege it was for me to pray with a very close godly companion tonight before church, to to pray for him and his family, and he to pray for my Uh, me and my family, all of us understand the value and significance of godly friends, godly companions, but it is equally true that there is a great danger in ungodly companions. And I find it quite interesting here that Jonadab, of all these individuals that are mentioned, I'm talking about Absalom, Amnon, Tamar, David, of all of these people mentioned in chapter 13, Jonadab may be the most dangerous of them all. He's the slithering serpent in the story. That is, as verse 3 says, Jonadab was a very, look at it, crafty man. That Description sound familiar? Well, it should, especially when I mention the slithering serpent, because it was in Genesis chapter 3 where we see Satan identified as the crafty serpent. Now, this is not ladies Hobby Lobby crafty, all right? This is wickedly crafty. That, that is, Jonadab knew how to get things done regardless of the means. He was smart, but he had no wisdom. He was intellectual, but he wasn't ethical. He was a very dangerous friend. So Jonadab here in the story notices that Amnon is struggling. In verse 4, look at it. He says to Amnon, and I'm going to paraphrase for you because dude is not in the original, but I imagine him saying dude. Jonadab walks up to Amnon and says, dude, what's wrong with you? You look hideous. Haggard is the word here. You look terrible. And every day, honestly, you get worse. Tell me, what is going on with you? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Now, at this moment, radar should have been going off. At this moment, what Amnon needed was a Joseph, not a Jonadab. He needed Joseph in the book of Genesis who ran away from any idea of making himself impure in front of God. Instead, he gets a Jonadab. And let me just add here that if Jonadab were a true friend, a godly friend, he would have given him the vice that would have honored God, that would have rescued his friend, that would have protected the innocent. But instead, he gave him a cunning plan, a plan to get what he wanted. 
So Jonadab, this dangerous friend, looks at Amnon and says, here's what you do. Go home, get in the bed, pretend you're sick. And we know your dad's going to come see you. So, so, so when your dad comes to see you, I want you to ask him to send your sister to come to your house to get in your kitchen instead of doing it in her kitchen, to come to your kitchen and make a meal for you, and then you'll have her alone all to yourself. Can I just add here from a point of application, be careful who you seek advice from. Be cautious about the closeness of your friends. There's enough wisdom in the book of Proverbs alone about friendships. Some of us should consider doing a topical study of it ourselves and reflect on all that the Bible says about our friends and the difference between good advice and bad advice. That's what we're seeing right here at the beginning. Jonadab is a dangerous friend because he's not telling Amnon what he needs to hear. He's simply helping Amnon get what he wants, regardless of what he violates in doing so. So we have a dangerous friend. We have an unhealthy infatuation. Thirdly, and this is where it gets really hard, we have a, an horrific assault, an horrific assault, verses 6 through 19. So Jonadab gives Amnon a plan, and Amnon did as Jonadab suggested. He got in bed. He pretended to be sick, and just as Jonadab predicted, Amnon's dad, which we know is King David, came in to check on him. Now, some have suggested this to mean that Amnon was a spoiled prince, the child who was constantly served at every whim by his father. You know, it's really hard to say, but, but what we do notice here is that Amnon and Jonadab both knew that David would come check on him. Now, whether or not that's because he was a concerned dad or whether or not because Amnon was a spoiled prince, I personally think it's probably more of the latter. 20 years old, calling my dad, telling him I'm sick. My dad is not going to get in his car and come check on me. Get some medicine, go to bed, sleep it off. You'll be better in the morning. All right? I told you the other day about me cutting my... My dad wouldn't even take me to the doctor when I cut my finger wide open. He had me... Put a popsicle stick on it and get better, all right? So I don't know. Maybe, maybe David was more compassionate than my father was to me. Or it could be that Amnon was spoiled. He took advantage of his father. Knew how to play him to get what he wanted. Either way, David shows up. And when David shows up, verse 6, he says to David, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my side that I may eat from her hand. And, and there's, no, there's no reasoning here. Nothing, David, David doesn't even say, well, why do you want to do that? He just simply says, okay. And that's exactly what David did. He calls Tamar, says, go to your brother. He's sick. Fix him some food. Tamar comes to Amnon's house. She began to cook for him. In his sight, the text tells us. That is, she's doing all this with an eyesight of everything that he can see. He's watching her. He's premeditating what he's going to do. And when, and when she was finished, she brought it to his bedside. But yet the text tells us here that Amnon refused to eat it. He, he didn't eat it. Instead, he demanded that everyone leave the residence. Everyone leave. Get out. Now, what's, what's, what's these extra people doing there to begin with? Because this is a royal family. 
It was not uncommon for royalty to have servants present at all time. Even Tamar most likely did not come to her brother's house by herself. She, she had to have a handmaiden or a servant that accompanied her. And so, so the, the posture here now is Amnon's wanting everybody to leave except for him and his sister. And that's exactly what happened in verse 9. So everyone went out from him. His plan to be alone with his half-sister had worked. And it's in verse 11 we see that Amnon makes his move. He says to her, come, lie with me. Now this is, of course, an erotic invitation. But immediately she refuses him. She rejects him. And makes that emphatically clear. Look again at our text in verse 11. Several things, and I want to take these apart by phrase. The first one is simply... No. <laughs> no, you see there? No. There's absolutely no question how she felt about his proposal, about his invitation. Amnon says, come, lie with him. His sister says, no. I don't want to do that. In fact, she goes on. The next phrase she uses is, do not violate me. Do not violate me. The word violate, it's, it's translated different ways throughout the Bible. We sometimes see the word translated as humiliate. In Judges chapter 16, we actually see the word translated overpower. So what she's saying to her brother is, do not humiliate me. Do not overpower me. Don't force me into this. Please don't do this to me. No, don't do this to me. And then she says next, for such a thing is not done in Israel. That, my friends, is a strong statement. Think about what she's saying, what she's implying. She's saying, God's people don't do this stuff. We don't behave like this. No, God's people are different. We're set apart. We're supposed to be holy. No, don't force this on me. Don't overpower me. God's people don't behave like this. We're not supposed to act the way that you're suggesting we should act. You know, that's the kind of friends we ought to be to one another. Instead of Jonadab coming alongside of others and saying, hey, let me help you get what you want. No, what we need is some more godly people like Tamar who will speak up and say, no, no, that's not how Christians act. That's not how the people of God behave. We, we don't do that kind of stuff. She said to him in the next phrase, do not do this outrageous thing. You would be as one of the outrageous fools. By the way, it is outrageous. And what is a fool? A fool is a godless man. It's a godless man. If you do this, Amnon, everybody will know you're a godless man. You're acting like a godless man. You're thinking like a godless man. You're behaving like a godless man. And as for me, she says, where will I carry my shame? And I think what she means here is what she would lose could never be given back to her. She would carry that shame the rest of her life. So let it be clear. Tamar strongly refuses him. In fact, don't misunderstand the end of verse 13. Because I see some of you already looking at it. When, he said, when she says to him at the very end of all of that, no, don't do this to me. This is outrageous. When she says all that, at the very end she says in verse 13, now therefore, please speak to the king. Speak to your dad. 
he will not withhold me from you. So, so if you read that on the surface, you, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, she just told him all this no, and now she's saying, go talk to your dad, and if he's okay with it, we can do it. No, 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 I don't think that's what she's doing at all. I think this is a statement of desperation. She's trapped. She's alone with a man who is stronger than her, who has already made clear his intentions. I think we obviously understand what's going on. She's trying to do whatever she can to get out from underneath his clutches. So in a last-ditch effort to protect herself, she suggests, hey, if you just go talk to your dad, go just talk to your dad, then let's do this the, the right way. I don't think this is sincere desire. She's trying to do anything she can to get out of that moment. But verse 14, he would not listen to her. He would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and laid with her. So he refused to listen. He overpowered her will and he sexually assaulted her. It was abuse, it was rape, it was horrific, it was criminal. Now, the psychological insight to these horrific acts are quite telling through this biblical example. Because think about it. What Amnon once said was love, now in verse 15, as soon as the act is complete, he begins to hate her. He tells her to get up, go, leave. He hated her. In fact, the verse says his hate for her was greater than his love for her. He even called a servant and said, Put this woman out of my presence. Put this woman. Put this woman. Yeah, the one that he's been speaking terms of endearment to. All of a sudden is now this, this woman. Put her out of my presence. And then he goes as far as to say to bolt the door. He assaulted her. He abused her. He raped her. And now he's treating her like trash. In fact, it's my opinion that bolting the door may have been Amnon giving the impression to others that she's the one that actually made the advances toward him. This is all so tragic. And it's a reminder that when sexual desires follow their God-given purpose, there is freedom and there is fulfillment. When sexual desires follow their God-given purpose, there is freedom in that and there's fulfillment in that. But when sexual desires are perverted, there is great harm and a cycle of emptiness. All right, we got, we got to hurry. Number four, a protective brother. It gets worse. A protective brother and a silent father. Verses 20 through 22. So Absalom saw his sister, and in fact, when he sees his sister, he sees her condition because, you know, it says she ran, she, she ripped off the, the, the robe, the sleeves of the robe that all the virgin daughters uh, would wear to signify their purity. So that had been taken away from her. She puts ashes on her head. She rips the robe to make it clear that her purity had been violated. And when Absalom saw this and saw her condition, it's interesting to me. This is just fascinating. He automatically assumed, he suspected that Amnon was with her and it violated her. It's the first thing he asked her. Have you been close to Amnon? Have you been close to Amnon? 
Now that should tell us something about Amnon's character in general, right? That this type of behavior was suspected of Amnon. And so Tamar's full-blooded brother goes in immediately to protection mode. And Absalom says to Tamar, there in verse 20, hold your peace, my sister. Hold your peace. Again, it's one of those things on the surface that may be a little confusing to her. But I do not take this to mean she was being silenced as a victim. I don't think at all that's what her brother was doing. I don't think we're saying, hey, be quiet. Don't tell anybody about this. Let's just go on with the rest of our lives. I don't think that at all. I think Absalom knew that because this was Amnon, her half-brother, who was the attacker, and because of the nature of Amnon's relationship with David, that he was a spoiled prince, he got anything he wanted, I think what Absalom is saying here is that they couldn't necessarily trust their dad to even deal with it properly. So, so Absalom is saying, let's slow down for a moment because David's not going to do anything about this anyway. We've got to be smart. We've got to think about it, how we want to approach it. And, of course, Absalom was right. Tamar went to live with Absalom. And although verse 21 says, when the king heard of all these things, he was very angry. He makes that clear. He's angry about it. He's furious. But it says nothing about all, at all that David did anything about it. He was angry, but he said nothing. He was angry, but he did nothing. Now, just imagine this for a moment, because to me, this is the most puzzling part of the entire story. I can't imagine knowing that one of, one of my girls could be violated by anyone, regardless of who it was. And I not protect her and speak up when I see that she's been done wrong. I don't understand why David is quiet here, why he doesn't say anything, why he doesn't do anything. Was it because he genuinely favored Amnon and he didn't want any ramifications for him? After all, he's the next in line to the throne. Was this messing up David's plan if it all came out that he was the one guilty of this? Was David paralyzed by his own failures that he felt if he actually dealt with this, then everybody would think he's a hypocrite because he's been guilty of similar things? I don't know. There's really no easy way to look at it except for the facts. A father's daughter was assaulted by his son and dad remains silent. But there's somebody else in the family who did not remain silent, and that's the fifth thing that I want you to write down, and that is an unholy vengeance. An unholy vengeance. That's verse 23 all the way down through verse 36. All right? So verse 22 tells us that Absalom stopped speaking to Amnon because he hated Amnon for what he did. And then we come to verse 23 and it says, after two full years. All right, now think about this. We have this happen. 
Tamar moves in with Absalom, he automatically becomes the protective brother that from this day forward, he's going to make sure that this doesn't happen to her again. David finds out about it. He's angry, but he does nothing. He says nothing. And then we end off verse 22, and all of a sudden we just know there's a riff in the family. Absalom hates Amnon for what he did to Tamar. And now two years go by. Two years? In other words, two years and nothing happens with this? Nothing significant goes on for two years? David was silent, which by the way we see clearly that David's silence solved nothing. On the other hand, as we will see in closing here, after two years, Absalom's vengeance solved nothing. And that's the juxtaposition, isn't it? One of the consequences of our sinfulness is that we don't ever get vengeance right. Even when we try to do it in a court of law with a whole lot of different opinions and voices, we still don't get justice and vengeance right, do we? It's a part of our sinful nature. However, God always gets vengeance right. Which is why God says in his word that vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine, not yours. And once again, we're faced with the reality of what we need. We need something better than David, right? We need something better than Absalom. For by one of these men, nothing was done. By the other man, the wrong thing was done. Here's what happens. Let me give you the summary. Absalom throws a sheep shearing party. It's a common thing. After several invitations, he couldn't get his dad, King David, to attend. Uh, the text seems to indicate that uh, David thought this is, this is too much of a big deal. It's going to be too burdensome. You can't cook for that many people. I'm not going to bring me and my servants. I, I can't do it. They go back and forth and... Absalom finally suggests, which I think was his plan all along. Well, well, Dad, if you're not going to come, please send Amnon in your place. We want him to come to the sheep shearing party, especially since all of your other sons are going to be there. All the king's sons are going to be there. Just, just go ahead and send Amnon since you're not going to come. And immediately, David saw this as problematic because he responds by asking him the question, well, why do you want him to come for why are we inviting him? Maybe you've had a similar conversation with uh, in your household at times. Perhaps there's someone that's on your uh, bad list and uh, your, your, uh, your wife suggests that they ought to be invited to the family cookout and you respond, well, why are you inviting them? Because there's obvious tension there. There's something wrong. This is not going to, 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 to go well if uh, cousin so-and-so shows up and makes a mess of things. David understands that these two sons of him have not spoken in two years. He understands what has happened, what Amnon did. He understands the level of hatred on Absalom's part. Why do you want him to come? Now, we're not privy to the conversation. All we know here from the text is that Absalom pressed him, pressed him. He wouldn't let it go. He kept pressing his dad. And every parent in this room knows what he means by that. Pressing, 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 pressing until we finally say, okay, okay. You can have the last cookie. I never say you can have the last cookie, but some of you do. I think it was never Absalom's intention for his dad to be there. He always wanted this to be a party where Amnon shows up. 
because this is a premeditated plan for murder. He tells his servants, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and I give you the word, I want you to kill him. In fact, when you read it in the text, it sounds like a military strategy. Strong. Be courageous. Be valiant. I give you the word, kill him. And that's exactly what happened. The servants did as Absalom desired. They killed Amnon, party over. Everyone jumps on their horses, and they run for it. Now, rumor made it back to the king that all the sons had been killed, which was not true. And this is for your study later. I don't have time to dive into this now. But someone is there with the king when the rumor comes back to the palace before the sons of the king show back up. And who is it that's there? What's that guy that we saw at the beginning of the chapter with Amnon? Jonadab's there. And he quickly corrects the story by letting David know that the rest of the sons were still alive. Only Amnon was killed. Now, given the circumstances, and again, you can look this for yourself, study it, and think about it. The timing of this suggests that Jonadab may have known the plan ahead of time. And here's this dangerous friend again. In very crafty ways, manipulating situations to see to it that whatever you want done gets done. I'll leave you to think about that. The rest of the sons make it back to David where they weep and mourn. Absalom flees in the other direction. His vengeance, though we may understand it, was unholy, which means it's always unhelpful because it solves nothing. It only makes matters worse. So think about this, and I'm going to give you the last statement. In our hands... Vengeance becomes just another expression of our own sinfulness. So whoever you're thinking about getting back at, whatever wrong you're planning to right yourself rather than giving it to God, may this be a warning. Even though you may not be thinking about murder, in our hands, vengeance is just another expression of how sinful we are. All right, here's the sixth thing, a fractured family. It's obvious, isn't it? I mean, when you open up the chapter, we, we, we got some family issues here. I mean, you think your family's messed up. David's family has become severely fractured. His daughter's raped, living in shameful hiding. He does nothing. His oldest Amnon is responsible for the crime, but now he's dead by the cold-blooded, premeditated brother of his, a plot, murder plot of his other brother. So do we have here, as my title suggests, a like-father-like-son dynamic? Well, think about it. David's two sons had now repeated David's two major crimes, sexual sin and murder, Bathsheba and Uriah. This is why it's so important that if we truly care as parents for our children, we got to guard our character. we got to watch our integrity because it is true more often than we want to admit, like father, like son. It's a terrifying possibility. David's house had become deeply and bitterly divided. Absalom goes to hide with his maternal grandfather, Gesher, which is outside of his father's kingly jurisdiction. He knew he would be protected there. And it seems over time that these final verses tell us that David comes to term with Amnon's death, but he missed his son Absalom greatly. It's truly sad, the whole thing, the sad family dynamic. And I remind you, from the man God chose.
He's still God's man. And God chose him knowing that this was all going to transpire. So how do we reconcile that? What hope can there be for anyone if God's promise of salvation is tied to such a fractured family like this? Are you telling me that the hope for the world, the Savior for all sin, the Messiah, is going to come from this kind of family? You see, because the ultimate son of David, not the sons of David that we read about in 1 Samuel 13, but I'm talking about the ultimate son of David who has, yes, come through this fractured earthly family. Unlike Absalom and Amnon, the ultimate son of David did not inherit David's flaws and failures. And because he did not inherit his father's sin nature, he has established a perfect kingdom where all forms of evil can be thoroughly washed clean in the righteous perfection of Jesus Christ. So it's not David we need. It's not Absalom. It's not Amnon. It's further reminding us that we need someone greater, someone better. We need Jesus, and God has given to us Jesus. There's more we could say, isn't there? But I leave it to the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart from this text as he sovereignly chooses. We must guard our hearts. We must Keep eye on our character because it is a terrifying reality that more often than not, like father, like son, let's stand together for prayer.